Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Cindy Spiegel, the author of the book Micro Joys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life Is Not Okay. And she is also the founder of Dear Grown Ass Women, a social community for women 35 and older. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here too for two reasons. One is before we started recording, we both discovered that we, not not in time, but in location, were briefly neighbors in the same sort of moonstruck adjacent neighborhood. Um, and also because I'm recording from home today. And if I seem extra wise, balanced, nurturing, peaceful, it's because there's three dogs in my apartment right now. So I'm I'm speaking to you with all the authority and the wisdom of somebody who has three dogs, even though yeah. one of them is just on loan from a friend. I mean, it sounds very much like you know what you're talking about. I won't lie. You're, there's, this, there's this energy and it feels like you know stuff. It feels like, you remember how when you're a young kid and you're acutely alive to promotion, like if you're about to become like five and a half or you're about to become a first grader and you're just like, <laughs> you'll tell everyone you meet. I feel like the last couple of weeks, I've just been buttonholing strangers on the street and saying, yeah, you know, right. there's three dogs in my house right now. Three dogs. Three dogs. This many. This many, like I've been uh, reintroduced to the importance of holding up your fingers and saying this right. many. And hoping you get three up and not like two. Yeah, no, I do four. have to think about it. It takes a yeah. second, um, but it's it's so good. And like every time I walk past the bed, if they're all asleep in a row, I'll just say there's three dogs right there. It's like I'm on Sesame Street all day. So you know what that is? That's a micro joy. That's what you're experiencing. It really is. I, I <laughs> promise I did not plan this introduction to be quite such a neat segue uh, for your own work, but it, it it did happen to work out. So thank you very much. You should have just called this book Three Dogs. You know, next book. There's always the next one. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad we're starting off on a joyful note. I feel like this is not this is not a super downbeat episode. I think there are there are difficult thorny questions uh, facing us, but. None, none of the sort of real gut punches that sometimes characterize a, a truly sad one. So I hope and I think we will be able to strive for a lot of joy today. And and that's certainly my hope. I don't know if you have any thoughts about when you saw the questions all come in at once, if you were like, wow, this is our real head scratchers. I saw the questions come in and actually thought, you know what? There is, we can access joy in the midst of all of it. Not because these are easy topics, but because I think they are not all consuming necessarily. So there's the availability of joy and joyfulness on the inside of all of this. I, I think that's true. I think these are all questions where there are real close and available options. So there's a way out. Sometimes you get a letter and you think, 
this is going to take you a while to dig yourself out of the situation. Yeah. And those ones can sometimes feel a little bit more emotionally fraught, but mm-hmm. I'll stop describing them and I'll simply start by reading our first one so we can get into get on it. In. The subject is whose responsibility? I have a cartoonishly abusive Munchausen mom. She pretended to be dying from cancer for years and made me her caretaker as a child. I was in charge of her pain medication and stayed up all night to monitor her sleepwalking and self-harm attempts. She also seriously damaged my sister's hearing with quack treatments for invented illnesses. When my sister turned 18 and moved in with me, my mother tried to burn the house down. Education was always my one escape from my home life, and I was able to attend an Ivy League college on a full scholarship. Unsurprisingly, I was kind of a mess and ended up needing an extra semester that wasn't covered by my scholarship. For some reason, the only federal loans available were through a parent. My mom consented to me borrowing $12,000 in her name with the understanding that I would be the one to pay it off. Before this, she would usually sabotage my yearly FAFSA applications. I think she agreed because we were already on our way to estrangement and this left a reason to stay in contact. Now I'm 27. My sister and I are both thriving and we've had no contact with her for four years. Student loan payments have been deferred since before I graduated. My mom is eligible for federal student loan forgiveness, but she can't be trusted to apply for these programs. And admittedly, these kinds of applications can be discouraging and confusing. What moral obligation do I have to make sure she doesn't default on this loan? How can I most expediently close this last open door? Is there some kind of mediator I can hire to help her apply for forgiveness? Or would I be over-involving myself in something that I ultimately have no legal or financial obligation to solve? P.S. I'm from central Illinois, and both of my grandparents say geminently. They also say, oh, for crying in a bucket. Fuck my whole family, but this is possibly good data. Just in case you weren't aware, uh, Cindy, a while ago, I was talking about folksy family-specific expressions and had put out right. a sort of general call for anyone who was familiar with the phrase geminently. And it's kind of great. This one's really had legs. I still hear from people who are like, yeah, I've heard that one. So thank you so much, letter writer, for including that lovely folksy detail in what was clearly a painful letter to have to write. I I didn't have any technical expertise to offer here. So I don't know if you had any thoughts in terms of specifically trying to navigate the federal loan paperwork maze, uh, or if you thought we should just kind of get into the more emotional or practical elements involved. But if you do know anything about loan forgiveness or applications, do let us know. Danny, I got nothing in terms of the actual tangible ways of of getting loans forgiven. It's been a long time since I've had any uh, in that regard. Uh, So I think we can just get right into the emotional piece of it. Okay, great. So letter writer, not to say that you shouldn't continue to look for more targeted advice about handling FAFSAs or federal loans. Just you're going to have to look elsewhere for information on that front because neither of us know very much about it. I I will say then, if we've got that part out of the way, I was a little bit confused by this letter because we went from the understanding was that I would pay this loan back Mm -hmm. to I have no financial or moral obligation to pay this loan. And I'm not sure where that idea crept in. If I were to guess, I, I thought maybe it was sort of like because she was such a bad mom, I no longer feel any internal obligation to pay that loan back, which... I sure appreciate she sounds like a record-breaking bad mom, but I think you should just pay the loan. Is that too simple? 
No, I don't think so. I I felt similarly when I read this letter because I, I, you know, what I will say is it's simple and it's not simple. Yes, pay the loan, but also consider letter writer your own personal integrity, right? Like you don't owe your mom anything, nor does your mom owe you anything. You went into this with the understanding that you would pay the loan off. So I'm not entirely sure where that got lost as well. And so I would just lean into the personal integrity piece. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I sort of figured if it was a, a totally, totally unfeasible amount of money or the letter writer wasn't earning any money that they would have included that detail. So my read is that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of I couldn't pay it all now. And it, it wouldn't be fun for me to pay down, but it doesn't sound like it would be financially ruinous. So I would just say, pay the loan at whatever rate you can manage. And yeah. hopefully you don't have to be in contact with her in order to do it, but just pay it down yourself and get it out of the way. Yeah. You know, or the, the other part to consider is if you don't want to pay it down, then you do have an obligation to yourself to help your mom get this paperwork filled out. Yeah. Which then would, you know, allow both of you to walk away from it. But there is that engagement that you may or may not want with your mom in order to make this happen. And, and I can absolutely understand why, given everything you've described, the idea of paying this money might feel really, really painful. Um, in addition to student loans are rough, but I, I think maybe a useful way of thinking about it would be $12,000 is nowhere near the kind of money that would potentially ease some of the pain of your mom trying to burn the house down or turning you into an unpaid nurse when you were a kid. And mm -hmm. so to think of this as that's not nearly enough money to make things right between us. And this doesn't have to be something I enjoy doing. It doesn't even have to be at the top of my list, but just what's the least amount of money I can put away towards this every month that will get it off of my radar within the next couple of years so that that one even small uh, tangential tie between us is totally severed. And so mm -hmm. to think of it in those terms of this just gets it off my plate and I get to feel done rather than something I owe my mother. Like if part of you feels that you don't want to pay it because it feels like honoring an agreement you had made under duress to her that like somehow pays lip service to the concept that you owe her something, I really get why that would feel painful. But I think it's just better to say this is going to be a tedious and unpleasant thing to pay down. It's not going to feel good in the same way that saving up for something I want would feel, but it'll be good to be done. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And also, you know, I love, Danny, that you brought that up because it doesn't negate what is true about the letter writer's relationship with their mom, mm -hmm. right? It's saying that is true and that is painful and that you you do have to decide how to move forward from and you have. And the money is there needs to be paid back, which is your responsibility. Right. Um, and beyond that, please, by all means, seek out information about federal loans from people with any knowledge of that subject, which we don't have. So again, you might you might go talk to a subject matter expert who's able to give you more specific and useful advice or, or who's maybe even able to say there is a way for you to apply for student loan forgiveness on her behalf without getting in touch with her, which would be amazing. Like if you could do that, I would say do that instead of paying the money off. Whatever you need to do to get this formally off of your plate, I absolutely support um, yeah. I just don't think that it will do you any good to do nothing about it and then just 
Because here's the thing, too, is if this does end up causing your mother more trouble, I think the odds that you're going to hear from her would go up. And so Mm. there's also that sort of practical element of this is a good way to make sure that she doesn't have an excuse to call me. That's right. That's right. Considering that you've been there for four years, right? Like allow yourself to keep that up. Yeah. Yeah. But that's hard. I, I would really... I would have a mental block about this one too. You know, if I still had an outstanding student loan payment that even in a small way connected me to my parents, given the grudges that I have there, I would have a hard time with that and I would need some help getting my priorities in order. So I really relate to that. And um, I I hope you're able to pay it down soon and never talk to her again. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, agreed, agreed. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Would you go ahead and read our second letter? I think this one was was a little more straightforward than I sort of realized. (laughs) I think so too. So the next one is called Guilty Yuppies. How do you handle friends' life updates when you are in a different income bracket? My partner, our friends and I are all from Toronto where jobs are competitive and the cost of living is astronomical. After moving to a different city and getting lucky with jobs, my partner and I now make $150,000 a year. Our friends really struggle to find employment and still live with their parents against their wishes because Toronto housing is so overpriced. Most of the time, these differences don't come up. We just chat and play online games or D&D together. But I'm struggling with how to handle life updates that bring our different situations into focus. My partner and I just bought a house. We'll be getting engaged soon. We're planning a European vacation. How do I talk about these things without either seeming like I'm rubbing our financial privilege in their faces or downplaying it too much and looking like I'm playing pretend? And how do you share the wealth, offering to pay for a dinner out, for example, without seeming paternalistic? My usual tactic is to joke about it. It's your tax dollars after all, for example, since I'm a government worker. But I always feel like a jerk if I do and a jerk if I don't. Whew. This is real, huh? This was really 
sweet. I, I think sometimes I get letters about friends where the letter, usually the letter writer has started making a lot more money and they feel uncomfortable about how to deal with it with their friends. And sometimes those letters come with a little bit of a kind of a tone deafness or mm-hmm. or something that seems like, oh yeah, I see where the tension might be coming from. But this seems like genuinely really just thoughtful and sweet. And I think that's going to serve the letter writer pretty well. Yeah, I agree. Where I did actually, you start with this? Well, first thing, first thing is I thought the same thing. I thought how self-aware of them to even notice that and recognize that. But the other thing I would consider is that these are, assuming that these are your good friends, they very well could be happy for you. So allow them to be, you know, it's not to say that they don't acknowledge or see that you are living a slightly different lifestyle now, but our friends are happy for us, even in these extremes. And so as a friend to them, consider that they may want you to just allow them to be. The other piece of it is I almost got a little bit of a sense of apologizing for their success. Mm -hmm. You know, but by using the word luck, you know, we got lucky with our jobs. Consider that maybe you earned those jobs. That's not to say anything about your friends, right? It didn't, it doesn't mean that they didn't, but it simply means that you've worked and you were able to get a job that you've you know, you've made happen for yourself and kudos to you for that. Right. This didn't seem like somebody who was like, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. It was like a little in the opposite direction of like, we just totally lucked out. And it's like, it's also okay to say like, you chose to move to a cheaper city and you, you, you got a good job. Like it's, it's not either we, we must all act like we just created ourselves out of thin air and like created the world we wanted to live in. But by that same token, you don't have to say like, it was pure accident. It could have happened to anybody. Uh, I, I just, I just happened to be lucky, but I'm, I'm a little garbage person. You don't yeah. have to be that. Not that they were <laughs> saying garbage. Sorry. Don't say that. Definitely don't say that. But yeah, wasn't there, there was this energy behind it of just, you know, we got lucky and here we are and they, you know, they're still living at home. Sure. I, I, I find that in life, we are, we're sort of, sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. Right now you're in this great situation. That's not to say that the next time it may not be them. And listen, it's nice to be generous with our friends, but I don't think that your friends are expecting you to buy their dinners because you make more money. You know, it's sure if you want to offer it, you can, but I think that can appear a bit more condescending than intended. And I don't think that that would be the intention. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of good balance to be struck here. And and so mostly I think what I want to convey to this letter writer is you've got a lot of room to maneuver here. That's right. And I don't want you to feel too worried that you're about to put your foot in it at every opportunity, especially because as you say, Cindy, like it's not like their friends have been saying kind of snide things or mentioning like, wow, you really like to flash the cash. The other thing too is like, yeah, I want the letter writer to be, I think it's good that they're thoughtful and self-aware and, and they want to be sensitive towards their friends' different conditions. But it's also like, well, you and your partner combined make $150,000 a year. You live in a cheaper city. You're a government worker with good job stability. That's great. But I just want to put this in perspective. Like, you're not on succession. You're right. not, <laughs> you didn't just buy a private jet. Like, Correct. you and your partner both have, you know, stable, well-paying jobs and you don't live in the most expensive city in your country. So, you know, again, just if part of you feels like we just have the most of everything and and just need to be really, really humble, it's like, you know, you're doing well and I'm thrilled for you, but don't, don't overcorrect in the other direction of like, I've got Beyonce money and I need to be really sensitive to my other friends. Like, um, 
don't don't overcorrect because that will itself, I think, bring tension that you would not want there if you act like you've you've been named king of Monaco. Right. <laughs> Your government job. And and I think too, again, like if your friends are saying or hinting that they really hate where they're living or they're really frustrated in their situation, that's one thing. And you can sort of, you know, welcome a conversation about that. But it's also really possible that as frustrated as they might be living with their parents in Toronto, it sounds like they really want to try to stick it out in this one city. Um, and so th- I think you can also consider it like they've made a choice, like whatever their chosen field is, they really want to try to make it work in Toronto. And at least right now, they would rather live in a kind of annoying but comfortable home with their parents than they would moving elsewhere in the country and maybe having their money go further. So that's, I think, the other thing to bear in mind here is don't assume that they feel miserably stuck as opposed to this is a tough situation, but I'm making the choices I'm prepared to own to get what I want, which is That's right. the the hope of establishing myself here in Toronto. Yeah. You know, and as New Yorkers, I think we can understand this as well. There are certain things you give up to live certain places, right? It could very Thank well be. Thank you for be saying that. as New Yorkers, I moved here in 2019. <laughs> so I've got at least four more years before I can say that. Well, you've got a couple more years. Well, I just moved. So you know what? I take that back because I'm not even Yeah, in there's New York no New Yorkers anymore. here. <laughs> as non-New Yorkers, you know, I can say... <laughs> That, um, you know, we make choices. I, having lived in New York for 19 years, I will say that there are choices that I made in order to stay there, right? There are choices that you, letter writer, have made in order not to be in that place, right? You can afford a different lifestyle because you chose to move. They chose to stay. Consider that that is important to them and that you don't have to pay for them. You don't have to change anything about your relationship with them. But what you can do as a friend is simply listen if they bring it up. You know, you can make recommendations accordingly, but there's no need for you to have any guilt about your success or your government job because they are in a different place. You know, in life, we we have friends and relationships that are often in different places. And so perhaps this will just prepare you for what's to come. Yeah. And I think, you know, the only other sort of stray thoughts I would add to this is, you know, Again, it's it's kind and thoughtful of you to want to be sensitive about talking about a European vacation when they're struggling to find like enough hours uh, to work each week. But I, I think a good rule of thumb is just everybody's interest in our vacations is pretty limited, regardless of how much <laughs> money we make. Like it's there's a reason that like the sort of classic trope uh, of the 20th century sitcom was like, we just got back from a vacation. We have slides to show you. And everyone sort of understood that the <laughs> response of the other characters is, oh God, we got to sit through hearing about somebody else's vacation. So I would just say you can let them know that it's happened, but they they don't want to hear every detail. And that doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with how much money you're spending on it. It's just people don't, it's not that they don't care. They're not happy for you. I, I think it's nice when my friends take trips. I'm just not that interested in seeing a total breakdown of their itinerary unless we're incredibly close. So I guess just read the room. Um, you know, mention it, don't bring it up constantly. And, and then when it comes to the dinner stuff, you know, I think it's totally fine to want to pay for your friend's meals every once in a while. But I would suggest, I would say like mention it beforehand. Don't just That's like right. spring it on them in the moment since these are older friends of yours. Like say, I'd love to take you out to dinner as my treat. Is that all right with you? And then, you know, if they seem deeply uncomfortable, don't force it. But if they seem like, oh, I kind of like to, I'm just worried you're being polite and I don't want to be rude. You can really be like, no, I would love to. 
But I think something that they would appreciate also is that when you do plan to meet up for meals, because if you live in different cities, I imagine this isn't happening all the time, uh, make sure to pick places or to suggest places that would be affordable for them at least as often as you suggest treating them. So mm-hmm. it's not just like, oh, well, now the new dynamic is we go out to really fancy restaurants and you buy my dinner, which was fun at first, but now two years in makes me feel a little weird so much as like that you still are going to be fine occasionally going to like a fast casual place or grabbing something from a cart. And it's not just like now that I've got money, we only eat at like Le Cirque, which closed, I think, in the 90s is and Toronto. is not in Toronto. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just again, I'm still thinking of TV and I'm like, that's where they eat from. on Mad Men. <laughs> You know, the, the, again, you know, I can't say this enough, but I love that you mentioned it perspective, you know, perspective, $150,000 a year. It's great, but not enough that you should be paying for meals. You know, like money comes, save that money. You know, I don't know the letter writer's age, but assuming if their friends are with their parents, they're I mean, you know what? I'm not going to guess 20s, what their age maybe it doesn't, early 30s. That's what I was going to say, but I didn't want to say that. Um, and it's okay if you're not within that age range, but that $150,000 a year spends very quickly. So be more mindful about saving it now for the future versus paying for dinner for friends. And I would also add that having friends on both sides of the spectrum, I actually have found it to be quite helpful for me when they do talk to me about what's going on and they're like, no, I don't want to know about your vacation. I mean, I want to know in general, mm-hmm. you know, in, in general about it, but it's just, I don't care about anybody's vacation in that much detail unless I'm there. Yeah. However, there is something to be said for sharing your reality with other people because in that we can also aspire to something different. Right. You know, and I don't want to downplay that either because I think when there is this real honest friendship, there is a push and pull and there is a sense of, you know, all of us being aspiring for one another, aspirational for one another. And so be open to sharing with them. And again, you know, to your point, read the room and see how maybe they do want more details about your European vacation, but allow them to be the guide for that. Yeah. And I appreciate that too. I don't want to suggest like your friends don't give a shit or they would be totally, totally bored. But, you know, I don't know. Don't bring it up more than three times per friend. That's my rule. No more than three times per friend. I don't know. I just, if you need a number, there's my number. That's a total Three times per friends. That's the recipe right there. Yeah. (laughs) And I guess then too, my my sort of final thought is, I I think it's great, you know, to sometimes want to take your friends out. I don't want to counsel them against that. Although I also tend towards the spend thrifty side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I could probably stand to remember to save more often. The other option is if you want to go in the other direction, we got another letter writer who needs $12,000 to pay off a student right. loan. So <laughs> if you're really wealth. feeling it, you can always uh, write in and I'll try to put the two of you in touch. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think my last thought is if you've talked about something already with somebody at least once sincerely, you definitely can feel confident making the occasional lighthearted joke about it. But if you feel unsure, I would err on the side of not making the joke just because in my own life, when I've been unsure about a friendship dynamic, And then I made what I hoped was a lighthearted joke when I'm wrong and it actually touches a slightly sore spot. I hate that. Yeah. So again, that doesn't mean you can never intuit how the vibe is and just go based on that. But if you're feeling a little weird when you do joke about it, pay attention to that and just do a check-in. It doesn't have to be a big come to Jesus conversation. It can just be, I love occasionally buying you dinner. Does that feel okay to you? Let me know. You don't have to answer right away. 
And then if they seem uncomfortable, then don't joke about it. But if they like it, of course, then you can occasionally do it. Because there's real joy sometimes in saying, don't insult me by pulling out your wallet. Don't. What are you trying to slap me in the face? Put that away. You shame me. Um, and that's really <laughs> fun. But again, it's only fun if everybody is happy and comfortable and on the same level. I would not want to make that joke with a friend who was like, well, now I feel bullied into not trying to pay for lunch and I don't like being told what to do. So that's my last thought there. Mm-hmm. Well, I can leave it at that thought because I think you've just mic dropped. Hey, what's going on with you right now, Danny? I The opposite of a mic drop. So I've been <laughs> doing this show, as you know, but no one else does, holding Mr. Wilson in my lap. Because if I'm not holding him, he shouts and shouts and shouts, which is 100% my fault, by the way. Because when he first got here two weeks ago, he was not doing that. But I have indulged his every whim and created a monster. So now if I am not cuddling him all day, he's like, why? What's going on? But he he just turned around and put both of his paws on my shoulders as if to say. There's some real puppy love going on there. And and also it's 3.10 and he usually has dinner around 4.30. So he mm-hmm. likes to start agitating for it at mm, two o'clock. Two. Okay. Two so o'clock couple, he wakes up from his early. morning nap and looks at his dish like, and it's empty? It's coming. Why is it empty? How long is, is Wilson with you? He's going to be with me through the weekend. His, his family has been uh, visiting relatives on the other side of the country. So it's been, okay. it's been a lovely long trip, long enough for me to really um, enhance his character defects. So I'm returning <laughs> a more demanding dog to his, his well family, said. which I, I now regret, but not, not for me because it's cute as shit. Well, I have to tell you, Wilson looks quite happy. <laughs> then you're going to send him home. Yeah. I mean, he looks pretty happy. He's a pretty happy little guy. He's just so cute. I might just keep it forever. That might just be what happens. Consider it. I feel like this neatly leads us into our next subject of conversation because you have a book out that's recently been published called Micro Joys. And I am holding an armful of Micro Joy right now. Uh, And so I would love if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us a little bit more about uh, what what your understanding of Micro Joys are that differentiate them from just joys. So micro joys are these easily accessible moments of joy that exist regardless of our current circumstances. What that means is that we can experience or tap into joy even in the midst of difficult moments, even in the midst of the most ordinary of days, right? Because we didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to reach very far to access them. So in your case, you are here and you are recording this podcast and Mr. Wilson, as you call him, is there no matter what right? He's going to be there because you've spoiled him over the past few weeks. And now he's sitting in your lap. You have many ways to look at that, right? And one of those is saying, what a micro joy. Like how cool is this that I could be home and I can be recording and this is my work in the world. And also I have a pile of dog in my lap. Also, I have these big puppy paws on my, you know, on my shoulder right now. Wilson, in this case, is a micro joy. You did not have to reach very far to access what is directly in front of you. Sort of like the daffodils that are outside right now, which sounds really simple, but you know, they're gonna be there whether I'm having a good day or a bad day. I have a choice in whether I notice them. Right? You have a choice in how you perceive Mr. Wilson sitting in your lap. That's a micro joy. I could not feel as if I had set you up more perfectly than if we were one of those volleyball teams you see during the Olympics where somebody sets the ball and then it's just like a perfect slam dunk. 
that was a, a beautiful illustration and it, it could not have been more suited to the task at hand. So um, I just feel deeply, deeply satisfied right now. Was there a particular moment when you had conceived of the idea for the book? Like did the did the difficulty come first or did the joyous part come first? Or, oh, or how no, did that? It was, <laughs> there was deep difficulty first and it was called 2020, which I think many of us uh, had terrible 2020s, even aside from the pandemic. Uh, for me, it actually came out of out of deep difficulty and loss. My nephew was killed in May of 2020. My mom passed away four months later unexpectedly. So Thank you. Um, my brother went into a cardiac arrest a month later, and a month after he got home, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. All to say, as someone who was an eternal optimist, I could not positive think my way out of everything that was happening. And as somebody who walked through the world with this lens of of sort of positive thinking. In fact, I wrote a book about positive thinking. I felt such guilt when I was going through all of that because that all happened in a 10-month span of time. Life just kept coming at me. And I remember thinking that I didn't recognize myself in the mirror during that period of my life and, and following really. And so the only thing that I can do, the only way I could sort of reach for that optimism that I had always known myself to have was to notice what was squarely in front of me. I didn't want to create a silver lining out of any of it. I needed to feel the grief that I was experiencing. I needed to feel the loss that I was experiencing. And I still needed those rest, those moments of respite, which is what micro joys really were for me. They were these moments within everything that was swirling around me. Yeah, that makes such a, a great deal of sense. And, and I think I really share your sense of um, there are moments when the idea of focusing on positive thinking is just sort of a mockery of yeah. what life is in that moment. Um, and and yet, as as much as it can sometimes sound a little hollow, neglecting to focus on what are the things close at hand that would bring me joy is really difficult. And and so I really, you know, I share that that sense of how do you find any kind of a balance between sounding Pollyanna-ish versus yes. just, yes, give in to despair, um, maximize your unhappiness. And, and, you know, I think I often, although I'm not a strictly a religious person, I, I often think of, you know, like, like that old Romans twelve fifteen rejoice with them that rejoice weep with them that weep and just that idea of aptness I think of when someone is in sorrow be in sorrow with them yes when there is joy be in the joy with someone whenever possible and that doesn't necessarily I think mean make yourself feel whatever someone around you is feeling simply meet it if you can um, and so I think that's a really useful and invigorating concept and yeah th- those are those are some depths as as they say. They are. I, I was thinking about that too recently. I've I've been reading an old biography of Oscar Wilde by Francis Winwar, and I hadn't realized this, but this came out in 1940, so it was like late enough that you didn't have to totally euphemize things, but right. early enough that there was still a fair amount of euphemizing going on. Uh, and I knew, for example, that like Lord Alfred Douglas after Wilde's death got pretty litigious. Um, I didn't realize he got so litigious that he wrote the foreword to like most of the wild biographies that were published within his lifetime. Um, I promise this is connected. Uh, <laughs> but but so I, I opened this book and it, it said, forward, Lord Alfred Douglas. And it just opens with, you know, if this book had been printed in the UK, I could have stopped it. And oh. although I don't believe that Miss Winoir has any malicious thoughts towards me, she is 
factually wrong about pretty much everything. <laughs> and here's a list of all the other books that I've stopped from being published about Oscar Wilde. And he, you know, he's just a, a fucking monster. And it's sort of fascinating oh. to get to see him a few years before he died continuing to sort of revel in the stringent libel laws uh, that make the UK such an unpleasant place. Um, and, and I was reminded that Oscar Wilde's great work, De Profundis, which he published uh, after leaving Reading Jail, um, that Lord Alfred Douglas had written his own sort of counterpoint to it towards the end of his own life called In Excelsis. And that just feels so bosy that he would to to wilds in the depths from the depths which is like a genuine moment of the deepest despair and like inward reflection when he was doing like hard labor in prison right um versus Bosey being a fucking piece of shit for the rest of his life and suing everyone and then writing from the heights by way of commentary it's like the opposite of rejoice with them who rejoice and weep with them who weep and I don't know. I'll take any excuse to bring up my axe to grind against Lord Alfred Ooh. Douglas apparently <laughs> there is an axe there in there I simply don't care for him. Um, <laughs> at any rate, I think we've gotten further enough afield than we needed to at this point. So I'm going to try to bring us back. It's also far afield is Mr. Wilson, who is going <laughs> all over the place. All right. I've got, um, if you have the time, a quick couple of updates from previous letter writers that I'd love to read before we send ourselves home. Please. Or further home than we already are. <laughs> So the first one um, has to do with an earlier letter from somebody who was uh, in college, had, I think, sort of a first freshman roommate and was concerned because her freshman roommate has a pretty codependent relationship with her alcoholic mom and feels like she has to send money to pay for rent and bills because otherwise she will either endanger herself or go back to an abusive relationship in order to get money. And so the question was sort of, how do I help my roommate and friend deal with her alcoholic mother. So this is feedback for the roommate triage letter. My situation was not as bad as this roommate's, but I was also the victim of severe emotional abuse since my childhood, well into college and into my adult years. I also started confiding in my friends in college and they tried their best to be supportive, but obviously they couldn't fix the problem. One thing I do now wish that my college friends had said would have been something to the effect of, this is emotional abuse and codependency, or recommended some books. I know that wouldn't have fixed the problem overnight, but for me, once I learned that my situation was actually very common to the point that there was even a name for it, that went a long way towards helping me overcome it. Not overnight, of course. It was feeling like I was the only one in the world with a relative like this that prevented me from getting help for so long. My two cents. Great. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have a lot to add to that. It's possible that the roommate has already said something like this. It's possible that she might say something like this and it wouldn't be as helpful, but it's always nice to hear what somebody else would have found helpful. And so you can take that into consideration. And then this next one is actually uh, an older update. So this is an update from a letter writer that you helped back in your old Dear Prudence days from the December 3rd, 2019, not binary enough letter. At the time, I appreciated your advice to talk to my partner, but also felt that you weren't taking me seriously when I said that I would have been fine living as a woman for the rest of my life, honest. So, uh, I'm a trans man now. Pretty obvious in hindsight, but what isn't? My partner was the best during my transition and during my pre-transition crisis. We had one or two conversations about jealousy, but it turned out not to be an issue. He was able to talk about my transition without making it about him at all. 
He asked helpful questions without pushing me towards one conclusion or another. And he's been my biggest cheerleader throughout getting on tea and coming out. I'm finally updating you because we are now engaged. We're so happy. And I can't thank you enough for your timely advice and encouragement during one of the most confusing times of my life. Well, that just makes me feel good. Congratulations, letter writer. That's lovely. And I can really relate to feeling both sort of condescended to and then later like, shoot, they were right. But I still felt condescended <laughs> to. Um, that's very beautiful. Congratulations. Both things can be true. Yeah. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today and for your excellent advice. As you can see, Mr. Wilson has been straining at the leash <laughs> because it's 3.30 and his dinner's in 45 minutes. So I mean, he and coming. I are going to have to find something else to do because holding him in my lap is no longer an option. Peace is off the table. <laughs> can we just quickly acknowledge that Mr. Wilson has hair not dissimilar to mine? <laughs> I not mean, dissimilar. I think... Look at the end. Yours looks better. Well, yes, but also quite similar. <laughs> quite similar. But That's he is all a I'm stylish, saying. stylish gentleman. Um, thank you again so much, Cindy. This was My delightful. And I'm so glad we got to give some advice together. Ditto. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye, Wilson. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. There's that line about, I suggested that while we waited for the green card, we continue to travel. And then later that line of, well, you can't leave the country if you're awaiting a green card. Yes. Like, what are we saying here? Right. Like, either you knew that at the time. And so you suggested that he break the law or like do something. I don't know if it's technically breaking the law, but like do something that would jeopardize his green card. Or you didn't know and then you found out. But like either way, once you found out, you could have made other arrangements or my God, if you married this guy so he could get a green card before you learned about the process of getting a green card, that would have been a really foolish thing to do. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.